Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us on podcast at cybernia.ie or follow us on Twitter at Cybernia. I'm Sylvia Leatham. I'm Marie Bourne. I'm Lenny Antonelli. And I'm Trina O'Connell. On the show today, we have a report on Dublin City of Science 2012. We meet an amateur rocket scientist. And we'll have Professor Patrick Denny from NUIG on the line to discuss the weird science of warp speed. We'll also have book and television reviews and a preview of some upcoming science events. But first, let's look at a few news stories that caught our eye during the week. Lenny, what have you got for us? It's an election story. I'm sure everyone will be thrilled to have some more election news. Um, Scientists will be eagerly waiting to see what policies the incoming Finnega Labour government introduces in areas such as stem cell research and science funding. In an email to science teacher Humphrey Jones's blog, frogblog.ie, a Finnegal spokesperson said the party welcomes stem cell research except in cases where embryonic stem cells and fetal tissue are used. Finnegal also said that it intends to extend regulation beyond the guidelines set out by the Medical Council in relation to stem cell research. The Labour Party, on the, on the other hand, has said that it would like to regulate stem cell research so that human embryonic stem cells can be used. Ireland currently has no specific legislation dealing with embryos produced but not used during IVF treatment. Meanwhile, the Irish Research Staff Association has called on the government to maintain investment in scientific research to drive Ireland's economic recovery. Speaking to Cybernia, a spokesperson said that to date, Ireland's knowledge economy has been more of an ideal than a practical reality, and said that Finland emerged from a similar recession in the early 1990s through investment in education and research. Thanks, Lenny. That'll be one to watch over the coming weeks. I have a story about an important breakthrough in cancer research at Trinity College Dublin. Over the course of our lives, our bodies make hundreds of billions of cells. Now, we know that cancer can arise when cells make mistakes in this process of growth and division. In fact, it's actually surprising that cancer is not more common given the number of cell divisions that occur and the potential for mistakes. Now, scientists at Trinity College Dublin have been investigating the process of self-destruction among early-stage cancer cells. Professor Seamus Martin and his team in the Medical Genetics Department at Trinity have just published a study in a journal called Molecular Cell, which describes a process called autophagy, whereby early cancer cells destroy themselves through a process of self-cannibalization. They literally eat themselves to death. This process helps prevent cancers from developing and safeguards healthy cells. So the researchers have discovered that certain genes and proteins play a role in switching on this self-destruct process, while other genes actually override it, encouraging cancers to take hold. Professor Martin and his team are hopeful that this discovery will lead to the development of therapies or drugs that can help reactivate the the self-destruct process in cancers that have managed to establish themselves in the body. And Professor Martin's research was funded by Science Foundation Ireland. Now, Trina, I believe you have a story for us about a rocket launch? Yeah, there's another setback in the Earth observation satellite that NASA's trying to launch. So last week's satellite launch by NASA ended in disappointment when the Taurus XL rocket carrying the Earth observation satellite was declared a failure five minutes after countdown. The rocket reached first stage separation and hit an altitude of 100 miles before falling back to Earth with its observation satellite named Glory still attached. For the Taurus rocket, which has been in service since 1994, this was the second botched launch in a row and its third overall failure. However, in its time, the NASA rocket has placed 14 satellites in orbit. It's a disappointing setback. It is, it is. Thank you for that, Trina. Um, Marie, you've got some news for us. I've got some fun news for you. 
Um, so there was a study earlier this week. Um, apparently, we can predict how likely our partner is to cheat on us based on the pitch of their voice. So this is the way it goes. Men with deeper voices are more likely to stray. So this study was from the Department of Psychology, Neuroscience and Behaviour at McMaster University in Canada. So it's a proper study, even though it's fun. And it was published in the latest edition of the online journal Evolutionary Psychology. And it basically links voice pitch to the signs of future portrayal. So participants in the study were asked to listen to electronically manipulated voices of men and women. And they were given higher and lower and they were asked to pick which one sounded more attractive and which one sounded more likely to cheat. And they actually correlated the two as well. So that was sort of cool. So the lead author of the study, Gillian O'Connor, she explained that men with higher testosterone levels have lower pitched voices and women with higher estrogen levels have higher pitched voices. So um, I was just thinking Darth Vader... He's not very trustworthy, is he? His voice is quite deep. <laughs> He's definitely more likely to stray. Uh, I've always been told I have quite a high-pitched voice for any ladies listening out there. <laughs> there we go. We've got a trustworthy person on the panel here. <laughs> Thank you for that, Marie. Dublin is the European City of Science next year, and this week I met up with Programme Director Dave Fahey to ask him what this means for Ireland. So Dave, tell me what exactly is Dublin City of Science 2012? Dublin City of Science 2012 is the title brand name that is being giving, given to a series of events that will happen um, with a science theme uh, in Dublin throughout the year of 2012. Um, the major anchor event is a, a gathering of uh, scientists from all scientific disciplines um, from across Europe and beyond Europe um, in which will happen in July from the 11th to the 15th uh, in 2012. Associated with that will be a broad programme of other science-related activities which will run throughout the year. So for the purposes of Euroscience um, and Ireland, Dublin is the European City of Science for 2012. Okay, and this is an event that has been <coughs> running for a few years now? Yes, the, the forum um, was first held in Stockholm in 2004, and has run every two years since. In 2006, it was in Munich. In 2008, in Barcelona. In 2010, it was in Turin. And uh, so Dublin gets to host it in 2012. Um, there will There is a bidding process going on at the moment for the 2014 um, hosting, but at this stage, we don't know the outcome of that bid. We should know within the next few weeks. Okay. Um, so is this event a bit of a coup for Ireland or is it a case of like the Eurovision where it's like, oh no, we have to host this thing again? <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly not like the Eurovision and that we haven't won it for five, however many times before. It is a significant coup for Ireland. We um, had to compete with Vienna um, for the opportunity to host this. Um, it was a very competitive process. And we're delighted to say that Ireland was the unanimous choice of the of the judging panel. Um, the Dublin, I'm sorry, was the unanimous choice of the Dublin of the judging panel um, against a very competitive bid from Vienna. Um, so th it is now a competitive process um, in terms of the desire to host the event, and there's a keen interest from lots of cities in Europe to do it. Mm -hmm. um, it will be the biggest event of its kind in Europe in 2012. So it is very significant um, okay. from Dublin's point of view. So how many people, scientists and uh, members of the public are you expecting at the event next year at the conference? Well, the conference itself, um, the July event, we expect somewhere in excess of five and a half thousand attendees over the five days of the, of the programme. The vast majority of those will be um, from outside Ireland. 
Um, they will all primarily be scientists, although it is not restricted to scientists. You simply have to have an interest in science um, to want to attend. Um, and there will also be a significant uh, gathering of international journalists, in, international science journalists will attend. So we expect a couple of hundred journalists to be part of that group. So all in all, five and a half thousand plus will be here in July. That's great. And is there a theme to the event? What kind of topics will be covered at the conference? The conference is designed to be uh, an opportunity for a general scientific discussion. So it is designed to be as broad and all-encompassing as it possibly can be. Um, the intent is to make sure that it's a, it provides discussions on all scientific disciplines from the physical sciences um, through to humanities and um, touching on the borders with culture. Uh, so we expect, as I said, uh, probably somewhere in the region of two to three hundred individual sessions over the over the course of the four or five days, including a number of keynote speakers. There are seven high level themes for the for the conference and the sessions will be aligned along those themes. And those themes include things like food, energy, health, information, science uh assisting development, um, the frontiers of science and so forth. So they're, they're very broad brush themes and the intent is to invite people to submit proposals um, along the lines of those themes. Okay, and that call for proposals has just gone out? I that call has just gone out. It is available on our website. Um, it is available for downloading as a PDF on the website. And so that's the first call that has gone out for scientific proposals. Um, as we go through the year, there will be subsequent calls for targeting other parts of the agenda, including careers, um, uh, science in the city, enterprise research, and a number of other uh, sub-programs that will form part of the agenda for the conference. Okay. And then in terms of the public program of events, what can we expect to see happening next year? Well, <clears throat> our intent is to try and create as much interest and noise and debate and discussion um, about science throughout the year as we possibly can. We will be associated with a number of existing events and activities um, and those that have a science uh, theme already, we will be helping to promote their event and participating in it. Those that don't have a science theme, we will be hoping to persuade them to make science the theme of their events. So, for example, um, we will be strongly associated with the BT Young Scientist events, with SciFest, with Engineers Week, with Science Week. So those are the, those are the, the obvious ones. In addition, we will also look at events like the St. Patrick's Day Festival, like the Horse Show, like the Ploughing Championships, like theatre festivals, street festivals, cultural festivals, um, activities that happen in a variety of venues throughout city, the city and the country. So um, community organisations, library networks. So as many um, nodes of engagement as we can possibly um, get together. Okay, so we can expect to see a lot of science next year in Ireland. Yes, the intent is to try and keep science at the top of the public agenda in terms of, of discussions as much as we possibly can throughout the year. So our hope is to make sure that we, we get as much of the public engaged in just discussing science in general, um, um, you know, tease their curiosity a little bit about science as a topic, help people think about it as a possible career, help promote it, um, help raise the awareness of how successful Ireland has been um, with its science and research agenda over the last 10 to 15 years, and generally just raise the awareness of science as an area and a theme and um, a career. Dave Fahey, thank you very much. You're very welcome. You 
You can find out more about Dublin City of Science at their website, dublinscience2012.ie. Earlier this week, I spoke with Colin Fitzsimons of the Irish Rocketry Society. He's giving a talk titled Amateur Rocketry, an Uplifting Hobby in Trinity College next week. Model rocketry motors, um, A to D, if you're 10 years of age, living in the States, you can walk into a model shop, buy it, buy the kit, the whole lot. Walk out to a car park, build, launch it, straight up. In Ireland, it's, it's a very different kettle of fish. In Ireland, it's classified as a firework, even though it's, it's, it is very different. High power rocketry is divided into three levels. You level one level two and level three. So you level three, remember that little bag of sugar, right? So you now got 10,000 newtons of force at level three. So that's a, that's a lot of power coming at you. Experimental rocketry though, is designated for a motor because everything base, is based around the motor. So experimental rocketry then is non-commercial, homemade or an uncertified motor. Normally past level three is normally where you'll see experimental motors. Um, teams of guys in the States who've actually sat down and manufactured their own motors now. They're manufacturing stuff, you know. The motor might be five feet tall. It might be, you know, a foot and a half in diameter. And the rocket might be going to 100, 200,000 feet. How the motors work? Well, they both use electronic ignition. And the smaller ones, the fuel burns all the way up along. It burns as one single grain from the bottom up. From the high power, though, the high power ones, they burn slightly differently. High power ones burn as a module. They burn out. They're non-complex because they're a solid. It's a solid system. Same as the same as the uh, the two boosters on the space shuttle. Once those two white boosters ignite, it's the same. There's no difference between them. Those solid rocket boosters and the stuff that we fly here in Ireland. It's the exact same material. It's the same process. The same grains, just bigger grains. You know, it's exact same. So model rocketry then, um, they typically fly only a couple of hundred feet up to the, up into the sky. Although you can with staging get them up to about a mile or two. You can put one motor on top of another motor. Because there's no ejection charge, when the motor is spent out of one, it'll ignite the other motor. And so you have like, boop. And you have one, and when that motor is spent, it gets ejected out. And the other one goes up so you get higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. Um, there's not a very simple recovery system in it, so it's a streamer or a parachute or something like that. And that's model rocketry. Not a lot to it. Unlike high power, well, high power is slightly different. It uses a composite propellant or a hybrid propellant. The hybrid stuff is, um, it uses nitrous oxide, laughing gas, as an oxidizer to add fuel. They normally fly thousands of feet up into the sky. They're no longer flying the height of the house or you know, just a couple hundred feet up. They're, they're really, they're... They're seriously traveling. Um, flights of in and around the speed of sound and stuff like that, you know. At this stage, you're no longer dealing with like bits of cardboard and stuff like that. You're into fiberglass or carbon fiber or our aircraft grade aluminium, you know, for the high, very higher end stuff. But it's really at this stage now, you know, you're talking about seriously sitting down and designing the rocket. Avionics bays, altimeters, tracking systems, stuff like that are fairly common. Design software. The software is great. This is Roxin. That's the rocket inside the Irish rocketry rocket, yeah. Um, so that's the whole specs. But before we built it, before I built it, I designed it on software. The software's fantastic because I can tell it, hey, I want to use this nose cone, I want to use this piece of tubing, I want to use this, this, and this. If you fly at sea level because the air pressure is different, if it's a sunny day again because the air pressure is different, if there's more water moisture, 
the whole you can input you can input into like a five mile an hour wind at a hundred feet up and a ten mile an hour wind flying the other way and it'll give you a full proper flight of absolutely everything. Um, you can even input that into so the electronics that are used. Um, altimeters, the most common. They can record the height that it can that the rocket goes to. When the rocket is falling back down to earth, the the altimeter will recognise that. And it will deploy the main parachute or the drogue parachute, whatever way, and various different kind types of combinations and stuff like that. The newer GPS tracking systems that are built onto the actual altimeter, right? <clears throat> and some of them get really crazy. They turn into flight computers. Um, you can have it coming back. It'll give you live telemetry, flight telemetry back. So as it's flying through the air, it will be transmitting. It'll transmit G-force, acceleration, um, where it is in kind of space for example and um, it can tell you what way the wind is blowing and stuff like the forces on the rocket if you put a set of sensors onto it and stuff like that you can even do air sampling and stuff like this and then obviously the rocketry can be going twice the speed of sound and it can be still transmitting this stuff back to you the rockets sometimes spin they spin very very quickly like um, a rifle from a gun right they spin really quickly so a lot of guys if they're going to put a video or camera and stuff like that they don't want the spin because you don't get any good quality video so they put um fin stabilization systems on right so as the rocket's going up the computers on board computers can actually figure out if the rocket is spinning or not and tell the fins what to do so it stops counteracts the spin or if it starts to weathercock into the wind they can get it to right itself up again so high power rocketry well you can't unlike the models you can't just go out and away off you go. You need to get certified. Ireland has some specific, very specific laws against launching rockets and stuff like that. Unlike the US, where if you're 10 and you live in America, you can go into Toys R Us and buy a model rocketry kit from between the motors A and D class motors. Go out to the car park, stick the motor in and fly it on the way you go. Right, simple as that. In Ireland, they're seen as a pyrotechnic display. So it's the same as having fireworks for a wedding uh, so for us to launch the rockets uh, we need to go to a couple of different government agencies most of the, the, the different agencies you have to go to are fine about it uh, the Department of Justice and the Aviation Authority as well they're cool about it the local superintendent sometimes he just might want it in his area and it's as simple as that unfortunately it's difficult for a 10 or 12 year old to go out and to kind of oh I want to build a rocket or a school or something like that to have to go off and do all this consultation process that's where we kind of step in and go, right, we've gone through this with them. We've gone through the red tape. We have the motors in. And the arrangement is that if the school or something like that comes on site on the day, or if you turn up with, you know, niece, nephew, grandkids, whatever, that we can provide you with the motors. And it's going to be in a safe environment. You can use the motors, no problem, at a licensed event. So we'll hold licensed events all the time. This is rocketry, the last one of every month, April to August in Inishon. All rocket events are public events in Ireland. It's just the way they're seen. Um, there's no private rocketry event in Ireland. We haven't advertised it that well. We've only inter-advertised again. The reason for that is to, um, to have a track record over a number of years and then slowly invite other members of the public. So slowly it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then each year though, there's never been an incident of at, at any of the launches throughout the year. So then we can turn around and say, hey, look, you know, it is very safe. We've a nice, we've eight years track record of safety. There'll be certification flights during the summer. We know there'll be at least two this year, at least two. 
and I'll be starting my level 3 project. The level 3 is the uh, 10,000 newtons of force motor. So it's the 18 month project. I'm going to take it's going to take me about a year and a half to build this rocket. So it'll be I'll be at the top level 3 is the highest level you can obtain in amateur rocketry. It's a power to weight ratio. I could put a lot of weight into the rocket so it doesn't it might only go 1500 feet or I can make the rocket really light and it'll go, you know, 15,000 feet. So I like to fly high, <laughs> right? I really like really going up really high. So uh, I'll probably build one that'll do about 10 or 12,000. And I'll probably have to go to either the UK or to America to fly it. 90% of your astronauts, cosmonauts and all these guys, cite rocketry as the number one thing that kept them in school, that got them interested in space, and led to their, their ultimate them becoming an astronaut. And kids get into it, you know, like it, it kind of excites them that if they've built something and it does like even from a model it does like you know nearly 150 miles an hour does three or four hundred feet up they get it back because it comes out in a parachute and stuff like that and they can do it again and again and then the rockets can get bigger and they can get more complex and it starts to, then they kind of look at it and they go well how can i make my rocket go higher how can i make it go faster and then they start to look at the laws of physics and they open a book and they you know they they, they kind of start to teach themselves about how rocketry or how physics and science and engineering and stuff like that work. It's a chemical reaction. The ammonium perchlorate is ignited and um, you end up with a chemical reaction. So, like any chemical reaction, like the engine of your car, right, it produces a mechanical force and that force then is the force of the rocket going up. And it's your first law of thermodynamics, so it's a conservation of energy. So you end up then with either sound energy because it's gone from chemical to mechanical you get some sound energy, you get heat energy, and then you obviously get the mechanical force of the rocket physically going up. You know, like I, I had to take the washing machine apart when I was a child, and my mum would tell me, come here, go, eh, put it back together. So I put it back together and have a piece left over. Right? And mum would cut trying to do a high speed spin and it wouldn't, and I go, oh, that's what it's, that piece is used for. My dad was kind of, kind of pushed me in that direction. He used to buy me chemistry sets and stuff like that as a child. And I remember thinking, God, you know, if I could have all of these things in this chemistry into a test tube because they used to fizz up if I could like kind of get the fizz to kind of come out through a smaller hole right I could make a kind of test tube to go so I done that one day and I thought oh magnesium burns really well so I chopped down this bit of magnesium and I put it in I mixed it all up and I lit it the thing blew up my face I was blinded for about 10 minutes and I used to get you know those camping bottles of butane I used to get those I used to burst them and I used to have a couple of cavity blocks and I used to fit down the centre of one of these cavity blocks really well. So I used to stack a couple of these cavity blocks, not kind of the, the frayed bit of concrete. And I used to try and fly them just to see what had happened, right? Because rocketry wasn't here. And I always just had that love of building stuff and sending stuff up into the air and it just came about from that. Sometimes the best part is actually getting the rocket back. Jesus, <laughs> you know? Um, but normally it's, it's the building of it I find I really like crunches that if, if you push the button does it work it's as simple as that something that you've built does it actually work if you press the button Colin's talk will take place at 8pm in the Schrodinger Theatre at Trinity College Dublin on Monday March 14th you can book tickets online at astronomy.ie this week for a weird science segment, we're talking to Professor Patrick Denny from NUI Galway. He's going to be speaking to us about warp speed and we've Patrick on the line now. Yeah. 
Now, welcome to the show, Patrick, and we have a big question for you. Years of watching Star Trek has led me to believe that warp speed is just another bit of science fiction. So maybe you can tell us, what is warp speed, and is it really possible to travel through space in this manner? Warp speed is a very interesting idea that was introduced in the very first pilot episode of Star Trek, as it happens. And uh, I think we all know from watching Star Trek in our early years and since that... uh, Star Trek Enterprise suddenly disappears in a flash with all the stars streaking past. And uh, it might be science fiction, um, but there's a great degree of uh, possibility there, and uh, it's not totally far-fetched. Would that happen if we were really on board um, a ship in in the future, though? Is that exactly what would happen if we did figure it out? Would we just be standing there on the deck going, yep, this is grand, nothing's happening to me or gravity, and I can see loads of cool, shiny white lights streaking past me? We would love to think so, wouldn't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, there are some theories out there that allow for this. Uh, and there are other theories that basically maintain that the second you put the boot down on that accelerator, uh, everyone ends up as more or less a tin layer of ketchup on the back wall of the spaceship. <laughs> so, um, you see, essentially the way it works, or the way that they propose it works, is um, that there is a thing being warped, and that thing is called space-time. So, okay. so maybe I just might explain what they, what they mean by that. Um, so someone talks about a warp drive. What, what are you warping when you warp things with, a, space dr- uh, with a, a warp drive? So I suppose the idea is if you imagine a flat trampoline and you put a tennis ball on the edge of that trampoline. Sounds safe and, enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so it's a simple enough idea. Uh, tennis ball sitting on the edge of a trampoline and you're looking down from above, nothing much happens. So now if you put a heavy basketball into the middle of that and you're looking down from above, the tennis balls start moving towards the basketball. Are we the so, poor tennis ball in this um, well, scenario? Well, this is the thing. All objects are. That, that's the whole idea to start with. So all objects are, and we notice that by warping something, we're actually warping the trampoline, and we're causing objects to move. So um, this is exactly what gravity does. So then we have this thing that we know of called time. We look at our watches, and, and, and time ticks by. And at the start of the 20th century, scientists found out that space and time were kind of mixed together because if you travelled really fast and you had a clock on you, your clock would slow down. Yeah. So, they so basically ta- said, time usually will give me wrinkles, but I didn't think it would turn me into a thin layer of ketchup. <laughs> oh, I wasn't really do. going for it, that it, effect. <laughs> time, time is an amazing thing. And one of the amazing things about time is that when, when they found out it was coupled with space, like in that trampoline example I gave there, um, you found out that you had something you could bend, just like I described with the trampoline there, and you could warp it. And when you warped it, funny things could happen. So the, the, one of the funny things is gravity. But another of the funny things that physicists theorize can happen is the whole idea of a warp drive. So if you have two objects on the trampoline, like the tennis ball and the basketball, and there's a, the, the tennis ball will roll towards the basketball, and it'll do that, and it will take 10 seconds, or it will take time. So the Starship Enterprise isn't just putting the accelerator down then. It's actually no, it's warping not. space-time, which is exactly. slightly more complicated than putting a bit more petrol in. Exactly. You can think of it like this. You can uh, you can either get from A to B by just letting the tennis ball roll towards the basketball, or you can mess with the trampoline. And in Star Trek, why do they mess with the trampoline? So basically, what they do is um, they pull on the trampoline itself, so so that the distance between the tennis ball and the basketball just shrinks. So and bang, we're we're yeah, bang. You are you're you're up you're up in, uh, in the other part of the galaxy, or suddenly the tennis ball is at the basketball. So, Patrick, are, are we at that level now? Um, well, obviously we're not at the level of warp speed, but uh, but scientists, are they actually working on on manipulating space-time? Is this something that, even though in theoretical stages, that we have a good grasp on? 
Well, amazingly, um, it's something that we already do to a degree. Um, satellites that go around the Earth at the moment, such as satellites that are related to GPS and everything, um, they're, they are traveling so fast relative to the Earth um, and relative to us stationary on the Earth that their own clocks start to, to uh, slow down. And uh, they have to be constantly corrected uh, for this. Oh. Um, so space and time start to bend. What physicists have tried to do is they've tried to take two approaches to this whole uh, warp drive aspect. One of them is a, was a, there was a Mexican scientist called Alcubia, and he basically said, uh, he came up with a theoretical way of uh, bending a trampoline, bending this trampoline to bring the tennis ball and the basketball that I mentioned earlier a lot yeah, closer yeah, together. Excellent. The big problem with that is, um, he said, once, once it was set up, he knew how to work it but he couldn't get it set up. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, exactly. thank you very much for that, Patrick. Thanks for yeah. taking time to talk to us. No problem. Welcome to the Elevator Scientist segment, our quick-fire conversation with successful Irish scientists. For the first in our series, we talked to Professor Alan Smeaton, Principal Investigator at the Clarity Research Centre at Dublin City University. Alan begins by telling us how he discovered science in his childhood. I wasn't a, a particularly geeky child looking at the sky and fig, trying to figure out why it was blue. I was, I was always interested in how, how things work and I, I went through the, the, the Lego and the Meccano sets and broke them and lost most of them. And I would do things like take radios apart at home. And, but I wasn't a good scientist because I could never get them to work again when I would put them back together again. Um, and I think this built up kind of a, a, a reputation in my family because even now, um, my mother, when I'm, I'm uh, doing something like putting a, uh, a three-pin plug on a, on a new toaster or whatever, she would still say, are you sure you know what you're doing? I'm putting a plug on an electrical appliance, ma'am. I have a PhD. I know what I'm doing here. But still, I guess this is a testament to my childhood. Um, but, but I'm a local. I grew up in Artane. Um, I went to school in St. Paul's and, and, and Belgrove, which is um, a good catchment for DCU. Um, when I uh, finished school, um, I had an OK leaving cert. I did well in science and maths. Um, and I had the choice then of doing um, either business subjects at Trinity or, or science in, in UCD. Um, so I chose science in UCD for no particular reason. Um, it was basically the, the, the toss of a coin. But, but uh, what I, I chose then computer science as an afterthought, but I, I liked it, so I turned that into my major and I moved from physics into computer science. And I stayed at UCD after, for after the BSc and I did an MSc and then I did a, a year as a junior lecturer and then I, I did um, four years on an EU project which led to, a, a, to me finishing my PhD. Um, and after 11 years in UCD I realised that 11 years is too long in one place, so I decided I had to leave. Um, and I came to uh, the newly founded... Um, DCU, which at the time was NIHE Dublin, um, in 1987. Um, two years after I arrived, then they uh, it got upgraded. We got upgraded to university status, um, and I've worked here ever since. It's not somewhere where you run up against a brick wall and you're left behind a desk. Then somewhere that you can keep um, moving forward with research. No, and in, when I first started, research wasn't an active uh, um, uh, activity for anybody in Ireland. We had a very very low research base. Um, and I was reasonably successful in a small pool and I was able to get funding and get students and get little projects. Um, and because of that, then I bubbled up through the hierarchy. It was a point, you know, got promotions and stuff. And in 1999, I was head of school 
um, as head of the School of Computing, which was growing very rapidly at that point, and new buildings and huge in increase in uh, intake in students. Um, and we had a new president who arrived then in the early um, 2000s, uh, Ferdinand von Prudzinski. And shortly after he arrived, I was head of school, I was dean of faculty, I was a member of the university's executive, and I was heading for a, you know, a career behind desks doing administration. And some people might think that would be the pinnacle of your career, really, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I found I was too young for that. I felt yeah. I was much too young for that, to be a pinnacle. And yeah. um, So, uh, so I, I, I remember the meeting I had with him, and I said... Um, uh, that there's, uh, or he knew already that there was an emerging emphasis on science. The government had completed the foresight exercise. There was the PRTI programs were investing heavily in research infrastructure. Science Foundation Ireland was just starting. And I, I went met with him and I said, listen, I think I can make a fist of this. I can make a good go of this. Um, but I can't do it when I'm head dean and I'm on executive. So um, I, I did a deal with him, which was is that take me off all of those things, cut me some space to try and make a, a success in the research world uh, and if it works it works it will have paid for itself but if it doesn't I'll go back to being behind desks um, so um, uh, to my eternal benefit and, and uh, gratitude he gave me that space and, um, and I applied for things and I got successful and I brought in large amounts of research money and I've uh, sat behind that administrative desk um, uh, as much as I um, as much as among my peers or as much as I wanted to or as others have wanted me to so I'm, I'm much happier much more successful and I think it's been a, a benefit to everybody so your day sounds like it would be a lot more um, different, flexible, and um, more events in it than the average um, senior research scientist. As I said, this basically this the, the variety of work, whether it's working on you know one day with somebody in the school of nursing on synesthesia and and observing how color and music synchronize together, to the next day looking at eye tracking as a, a user interface analysis toolkit. Um, it, it, the variety is what basically keeps me going and keeps me hugely motivated and makes me want to get out of bed and, and come into work every morning. That's uh, funny. It was actually it was one of my questions that I wrote now. What makes you want to jump out of bed and come into work in the morning? <laughs> yeah, it's because, because this morning is going to be totally different to yesterday and tomorrow will be totally different again. There's, there's, there are elements of routine and repetition in the day, which is fine, which, which is great because it gives it some structure, um, uh, but it's the, the variety of work. That, that usually makes me interest. Yesterday, for example, most of the day was taken up with a visiting delegation from Fujitsu, a large Japanese company, who came yeah. to spend half a day with us and uh, basically organised um, tours and presentations of our work uh, to them. Uh, today is this, and I'm doing some teaching later on, uh, and then tomorrow I'm at uh, meetings at UCD. So uh, every day is different. Do you have any um, highlights of your career that you just that would be things that would stick out for you? Any achievements or? breakthroughs or even collaborations, things that you're just like, oh, there will be my gold medals or whatever. In my yeah. Well, okay, there's awards and there's ceremonies and there's, there's things you've won and, you know, plaques that can go on walls and things like that and best paper awards. And, um, but, but I suppose the things that, that really um, uh, please me most is when you start to see some of your research work that you've done either on your own or, or um, uh, in collaboration with others starting to impact on real people's lives. Uh, and probably one of the highlights is it's not a, a single moment, but it's a slow evolution of of of, it, um, of, of, of developments. And that's the work we're doing with wearable sensors, um, in particular wearable cameras, are now starting starting to have an impact on on people uh, who have early stage dementia and early stage Alzheimer's. And, and the software that we've developed is being used productively by people who have these problems. And uh, so 
I think probably one of the highlights was when um, when people who I, who I still don't know, I've never met them, but who use our software, can't make contact with me and, and drop me an email and say, I'm using your software to um, help. Uh, uh, I'm a carer for somebody who has early stage uh, memory problems and I'm using your software and it's great. Thanks. And that's that's not an award, that's not a ceremony, that's not a medal or anything, but when you see something like that happens, and that's that's really very um, uplifting and inspiring. And what next? Infinite possibilities? What next? Um, I don't know what uh, next week or next month or next year is going to be like. It's the great thing about research and, and the freedom, the academic freedom um, that comes with this and that, that I can get to decide what I want to do, provided within certain bounds. And we see a lot of stuff in the papers and in the media about you know threats to academic freedom and, and, and uh, I don't see that as being any kind of restriction. I, I know that Next week, next month, next year, I can do things, I can explore things that are of interest to me that I think will be valuable to you know, people in general. Um, uh, so, so what research will I be doing next month, next year, next, next week? Um, I have a certain look ahead, but beyond you know, just a, a year or two... I Depends on the random know. particles that bounce off you. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like Brownian motion. You don't <laughs> yeah. know. It's serendipitous. It's who you meet. It's what problems you read about. It's what newspaper or magazine articles. It's the context you have. It's what you see online. It's, 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 it's a great... One of the, 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 the real um, privileges is having that academic freedom to choose the top of the topics that are of interest to you and that you think will make a difference and then you choose to explore. I've got one more question for you <laughs> and it's um, science is dot dot dot. It's fun. Welcome to the Culture Corner and this week we're going to have a book review and we're going to look at some TV. And now Sylvia read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks and she's going to tell us all about that book. That's right Marie and the book is by Rebecca Sclute and it's an amazing true story of a woman named Henrietta Lacks who died in the 50s but whose cells left a legacy that have changed the face of medical history. Um, So who was Henrietta Lacks? Uh, She was a poor black tobacco farmer who died of cervical cancer in 1951 in Baltimore in the US. Now, just before she died, her doctor took a piece of her tumour, put it in a petri dish and passed it on to another doctor by the name of George Guy. And Dr. Guy kept Henrietta's cells in his lab and unusually they stayed alive and never died. And did Henrietta know about this? Uh, No, she didn't, actually. She didn't know about this uh, and her family didn't know either. Um, It was only years later that they found out. Um, Now, the the fact that the cells stayed alive was uh, especially unusual because up to that point, scientists had been trying to keep human cells alive outside the body in culture for decades. Um, so that, you know, they wanted to do this so that they could understand biology better, so that they could Mm. test drugs and see how the body responded and make advancements in treating diseases. But up to that point, cells that they tried to keep alive outside the body had always died until they got Henrietta's cells. And her cells were very unusual. They were just extremely virulent. They reproduced and divided at an amazing rate. And in fact, they're still alive and reproducing to this day. Um, so it the, was no mistake that they picked Henrietta cells then? They, well, they, it they wa- were special cells? 
Well, mm. it was a random. Uh, George Guy was collecting tissue cells from mm. basically anybody he could and trying to keep them alive in his lab by giving them certain nutrients and culture. But cells always died. Um, now, that may have been because they were always uh, healthy cells. Uh, but these cancer, cell, cancer cells, as we know, they, they reproduce and they divide. It's kind yeah, of growth yeah. gone crazy. So that may have played a part in the fact that her cells were unusual and they just, they basically never, ever died. They, and they were extremely strong. They can float in the air. They could live on door handles. They didn't even have to wow. be in culture. Um, so th- th- they, they're they still reproducing. Like every 24 hours, they're able to produce a whole new generation. And uh, they say in the book that if you could get all her cells together and weigh them, they would actually weigh 50 million tons. God, that's some legs you to leave behind. It, it <laughs> certainly is. It certainly is. And do do we know what it was about her cells that were unique, or do we, or has this been repeated with anyone else's cells since Henrietta died? Do we know? Um, since then, there have been some cell lines that have stayed alive. Okay. Um, they do. I, I don't want to give too much away about the book because it it is um, almost like a you know a mystery or a thriller at times that you're following along with the story. But they do towards the end come up with a hypothesis as to why her cells in particular, did stay alive. Um, but the important thing is that they, what they actually used her cells for then, um, well, you might actually ask, uh, what didn't they use her cells for? Because they were central in so many of the most important medical discoveries of the past half century. They were used to help develop the polio vaccine. That was a very serious epidemic in the 50s in America. Um, They were used to study how dozens of viruses worked and how cancer worked. They were used to develop cloning and stem cell techniques. Uh, Her cells helped in the development of IVF. Um, Studying them, scientists figured out that we have 46 chromosomes instead of 48, as had been previously thought, and they could make huge leaps forward in the field of genetics. They were used to test the effects of all sorts of drugs, hormones, and vitamins, and they even sent her cells into space to test the effects of zero gravity on the body. This woman's like the foundation of all modern science research or something. Yeah, well, you could say that um, because they're very much uh, still around and, and being used today. Like if you walked into any medical researcher's lab right now and opened their freezer, you would more than likely see... Um, Henrietta's cells sitting on the shelf. They became known as HeLa cells, H-E for Henrietta and L-A for Lax. Um, In fact, recently I met a researcher from the Tyndall Institute in Cork who told me that he was testing the toxicity of cancer drugs using microchips and HeLa cells. Um, And also, interestingly, the um, cancer research that I spoke about earlier in our news item at Trinity, uh, that study was performed using HeLa cells as well. And does the book do you anything sort of go into any background of the personal life of Henrietta? Because it's sort of mm. nice to see they name the cell Gila after her. It would be nice to see a little bit of the human side of the research. Yeah, I mean that that's uh, what's so fascinating about this book is that it's not just a scientific report. Um, it's also the very personal story of Henrietta. Her her life is recreated by the author Rebecca Sclut, um and uh, her family. Now her family didn't know that her cells had even been taken until about 25 years after she had died. So um, 
the author meets the family, she interviews them all, and and they go on a journey of discovery as well, uh, where they, you know, they find out uh, what happened to their mother. Um, And of course, uh, as as well as the uh, journey of discovery, there's also the uh, fact that the family were quite poor and never benefited or profited in any way from these HeLa cells. Um, at the original scientist who had taken her cells, uh, George Guy, he didn't make any money from them either. He was just, you know, purely interested in research and he shared her cells with whoever wanted them. But whoever wanted them was basically every medical researcher in the world. So, so pretty soon, well, pretty soon they needed to set up factories to start mass producing these cells because the demand was so huge. So um, a lot of people did make money from selling these cells and you, you can even buy them today on, on the Internet. Wow. And does it have a happy ending? <laughs> because we're basically seeing a family that's still more or less in poverty. and, mm, and yeah. The, yeah, the family uh, can't afford health care, basically. So, I mean, it's it's quite depressing, uh, quite a strange contrast to see like the, the legacy mm. and um, what she, Henrietta Lacks has given to the scientific community and to the world and to anybody who's suffered like so many diseases but yet her own family um, never really saw any benefit and also the medical establishment never uh, explained to them what was going on and you know so there was just a, a whole lack of knowledge and they, they never really knew or understood. Mm. Yeah, because I, I, I heard somebody to, somebody in passing told me about the book and said that the family misunderstood how Henrietta was immortalised and they were mm. afraid that part of her was still alive, like her soul yeah, or her they, essence or something. They were told, they, well, they read, like, they had scraps of information. So they, like, they read a magazine article that said her cells were used for cloning and then, of course, they were imagining that there was, you know, a village of Henriettas walking around somewhere in England, you know, because there was articles about the cloning of Dolly the sheep. So they, they just basically didn't really understand because it was never um, explained to them properly, even how cells work, you know, just basic stuff. It raises interesting points on the ethics of taking samples from people and it, using them for further research. It really does. I mean, there's a lot in the book about... Um, it does raise questions about the issues of patient consent um, when Henrietta was having her cells removed, there was no obligation on her doctors to tell her what they intended to do with them. Um, now, nowadays, doctors do have to tell patients if they intend to carry out specific research on their cells or tissues. But if you get, say, a biopsy or a mole removed or an appendix out, uh, your tissues may well be stored and then used in research studies later on. And there is absolutely no obligation or legal requirement for doctors to tell you that. Um, Now, some hospitals do ask patients to sign generic consent forms agreeing to disposal or storage of your tissues, but there's no actual law requiring them to do so. And it's a total grey area when it comes to deciding whether you have the right to exercise ownership over your tissues once they're outside your body. Um, You can expect to hear more about this in coming years uh, because in the US at the moment there are tissue rights activists who are calling for clarity on the legalities of the whole area of human tissues Uh, in research. And of course, um, the worry is that if the system is changed from how it is currently, it could actually slow down scientific progress. 
Thanks for that, Sylvia. Sounds like a really good read. And meanwhile, I didn't open any books this week, but I watched some TV. I watched a BBC programme. It's in a Horizon programme called Are We Still Evolving? And this was presented by scientist Alice Roberts. And it's interesting that you mentioned ethics here because this brings it in as well. It's looking at if the human race is still evolving and what about technology and do we use technology to stop ourselves from evolving essentially but more interestingly does modern medicine and science now mean that we can actually manipulate our own evolution so I thought I was wondering what the panel thought about this that um, evolution is meant to be one of those things that just happens we have no power over it ourselves at all but now we can actually start to manipulate genes and the human genome and we could pick you know, we can pick our next generation of children. We can pick if it's a boy, if it's a girl, what traits they have. Will it be sporty? Will it be intelligent? We can have designer babies, basically. What do you guys think? Do you think it's a good thing? I mean, we, we're going to have to mess with it anyway. So It's an interesting one. It's a mixed bag because the, the idea of removing genetic disease sounds like a fantastic idea. But people who have genetic disease currently say, are they going to become second class citizens? And there are legal issues in the EU. There are directives limiting what you can actually test for and what sort of genetic manipulation you can do to humans, which is very, very interesting and quite mm-hmm. the kind of ethical minefield you go for eugenics. Yeah. Should we just leave well enough alone? Should we make things better for our utopian future? And then there's the aesthetics of it. I mean, it's sort of like one step up from getting some plastic surgery done, really. And do you want your baby to be six foot tall and... Have blonde like, hair, like blonde <laughs> hair, blue eyes. We're going into that sort of area, so yeah, you're not you're not picking it to better the human race. You're picking your baby to look good or perform well or earn more money in the future because of their intelligence or their genetic advantage. I mean, it's a bit brave new world. It, it is very brave new world. <laughs> Um, but interesting in the programme as well was recent evolution, stuff that we've no control over. But they looked, they went to Nepal and they looked at how Sherpas were able to breathe really well with thin oxygen up on in a high altitude. And then they talked about tourists basically dropping dead from altitude sickness. And they were thinking, wait a minute, that we should study this. There's a big difference. So like we're all meant to be the same, but there is a big difference. So they've actually, evo- Sherpas have evolved to have higher levels of haemoglobin in their body than we do. So they're more efficient at catching oxygen from thin air so their evolution is still happening whether we like it or not and one of the biggest things that the program talked about was the fact that other things are evolving alongside us like viruses so we've got no control over that i mean we could be we might think we're great technology is protecting us we don't need to evolve anymore the weakest will also survive i mean i probably wouldn't survive without modern technology <laughs> because i'm blind as a bat i'm using contact lenses right now so if you if you go through the human race right now and look at how are we all genetically advantageous? I mean, the it's not survival of the fittest anymore, but I, I thought that was very interesting. How, how much are we blanketed by technology or buffered by it? It's one of those ideas that's been thrown around maybe, and I think it's sort of dying out now, was the idea that sort of human evolution has stopped, that we've come to a point where we're kind of perfected and we can't go any further. But it seems that idea seems to be, you know, withering away. Did the show t- mention that idea at all, that human evolution, that some that scientists had thought that, it had, that, that, we had, that we had actually stopped evolving? Um, something that I've heard mentioned a couple they, times. Yeah, they didn't go down the path of we've stopped evolving because we're just so darn per- perfect or whatever. They were like, well, we stopped it ourselves. We don't need we don't need to sort of um, survive out in an in an external environment. We don't need yeah. to compete for food anymore. We compete for like lines in the che- like at the checkout. We com- <laughs> we compete for like we don't compete anymore. We're all just protected and blanketed. There there's no need to evolve. We're all special snowflakes. We're all special snowflakes. And this was interesting. Um, This 
a professor in the US is tracking a particular town there and sort of predicting what the future of the human race will look like. And he's saying that we're all basically getting shorter and fatter, according to this town in America. <laughs> and that, and the, the woman who's presenting the show, Alice, was saying, well, is that genetically advantageous? But that brings into play, like, d- does it matter anymore? I mean, if we all, if we, none, nobody has to compete for resources and the sick survive as long as the naturally healthy, I mean, the, then has, we, we've stopped our own evolution. But we'll have to watch out for the viruses, though. <laughs> we'll still be mutating in the background, quietly losing useful enzymes. What, like X-Men? <laughs> losing your appendix, for example. You know, yeah. we don't have this handy appendix for digesting cellulose anymore. It's just almost disappointing. We could eat paper. That would be handy. <laughs> and the most recent evolution um, from when we started farming would be the whole milk, the lactose tolerance. If you look, they actually mentioned Ireland here. They said that if you look at a map of the world according to lactose tolerance, we, we're the best at digesting. Yes, we're the best oh. at digesting milk in the entire planet. That's <laughs> good to know we're good at yeah. something. So that would be down to, but that's down to technology, tools, farming. So we, we um, have a lot of cows and we evolved around that because milk was like one of those nutritionally denser substances. If, if, you know, you don't have to go and hunt and gather if you've got cows and your milk right there. So all the people who couldn't really digest milk sort of died out or the trait for that became stronger to digest it. I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. <laughs> Sounds fascinating, Marie. Thank you for that. Finally on the show, we'll take a look at some upcoming events with Lenny. Yep, some really interesting events coming up over the next couple of weeks. Um, lots on this week. For a start, uh, Ben Goldacre, the Guardian columnist and bad science author, will be speaking at the Atlantic Conference in Tullamore this Thursday, the 10th of March. The conference will be examining how educators can inspire students to engage in science, technology, engineering and maths subjects. Uh, the Science Gallery's Michael John Gorman and the government's chief science advisor, Patrick Cunningham, will also be speaking. Uh, the bad news is that tickets, though, are €140, Euros, um, but you can check out, you can register for the event at eventelephant.com forward slash Atlantic Conference 2011. Um, also on Thursday, the Science Gallery in Dublin is holding a preview party for its new Memory Lab exhibition at 6 o'clock. The exhibition opens fully the following day, Friday, March 11th, and runs until the 8th of April. Memory Lab will feature memory experiments that investigate everything from how good your short-term memory is to the evolution of memory itself. Visitors will also be invited to record their earliest memories as the Science Gallery attempts to create the world's largest database of first memories. Um, for more information and to get tickets to the preview party, you can go to sciencegallery.com. Um, Another thing on Thursday, if you uh, make it to the Science Gallery uh, opening, uh, after that, Astronomy Ireland is asking everyone who owns a telescope to take it out and run a moon watch from 8pm on Thursday night. Uh, the group is coordinating a national moon watch and says that uh, on Thursday the spectacular diamond-like Pleiades star cluster will be visible next to the moon with binoculars or a telescope. Check out astronomy.ie for more info and remember that Astronomy Ireland is also running it, the aforementioned talk on amateur rocketry in Ireland next Monday, the 14th of March in Trinity College. Um, on Tuesday, March 15th, uh, the UN's Dr. Wendy Mann will be giving a talk titled Climate Change in Agriculture, How to Ensure Food Production is Not Threatened. It's part of the EPA series of climate change lectures and you can register for that at epa.ie. It takes place in the Mansion House in Dublin. And finally, on Thursday, March 25th at 10am, the RDS and the Irish Society for Immunology will host a series of short talks for senior cycle students on immunology. It's titled Weapons of Mass Destruction, 
of the immune system. The lectures will look at the role and function of the immune system in the body, as well as bacteria, viruses, and allergies. Uh, all content will be directly related to the Leaving Cert Biology Syllabus. Um, it costs two euros per pupil, and you can register at rds.ie forward slash science. Thanks for that, Lenny. And if you have an event you would like to let us know about, you can email us on podcast at cybernia.ie. That's it for this episode of Cybernia. If you want to contact the show, please email us on podcast at cybernia.ie or you can follow us on Twitter at Cybernia or visit us online at cybernia.ie. Thanks to our producer, Gavin Byrne. Thanks to Near FM for studio time. Thanks to all our guests and contributors. And thanks very much for listening. Music